When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Noble Blood. I am so excited to be here talking with the incredible historian, Helen Carr, who wrote a really wonderful book called The Red Prince, all about John of Gaunt. I would say one of the less explored sons of Edward III. Helen, welcome to Noble Blood. Thank you so much for having me. What brought you to John of Gaunt? And for those who maybe don't know, how would you probably more eloquently than I just did describe who he was in medieval history? So I came to John of Gaunt many, many years ago. I had uh, just moved to London as a postgraduate and I was starting to get used to life in the big city and being such a history geek as um, I always have been my whole life. One of the things I wanted to do in my time off was going to explore some of the lesser known areas of London, the historic areas of London. And so I spent my weekends sort of walking around the Tower of London, really cool places that I suppose is such a luxury for me. I get to just go and do that, but I suppose a lot of your listeners won't be able to just go to all these incredible castles and things but it is really cool and there is so much history there and I heard about this place called the Savoy Palace which I knew was around the area um, of the Savoy Hotel which is a very famous hotel in London if you're familiar with it and I wanted to go and see if anything remained and when I got there I found it remarkable that there was literally nothing that was there apart from like a few plaques and one of the plaques said this was the home of John of Gaunt the Duke of Lancaster and famous people who resided here were included Geoffrey Chaucer and King John of France and the story of how the Savoy Palace burned down and why John of Gaunt was such um, a hate figure in this period is really what fascinated me and I went on to write a whole dissertation thesis about it and then from then I knew that I just had to explore his character further. So he was the third surviving son of Edward III, who is um, better known probably as more of a warrior king. He's a very famous king. He was probably one of the longer reigning kings of the Middle Ages as well. John of Gaunt was also the brother of the Black Prince, who is again another famous figure in medieval history. And even though the Black Prince didn't live nearly as long as John of Gaunt, he certainly of the two of them, the far more famous brother. So just to refresh people's memories who maybe haven't listened to that War of the Roses episode of Noble Blood in a little while, what is happening with Edward III's sons? Because someone would hear, oh, a king has a bunch of sons. That sounds great and is not going to lead to conflict at all. <laughs> no, actually, they all got on very, very well. And one of the big issues that people in this period in the second half of the 14th century had with John of Gaunt was that he was actually such a loyal member of the royal family. He was so loyal to his father, so loyal to his brother, and he was a staunch royalist. And as a unit, they were incredibly close and powerful. And Edward III's MO was really to sort of establish his sons in various sort of power pockets across Europe. 
John of Gaunt at one point went off to try and become King of Castile. He installed his son Lionel in Italy. The Black Prince was the only son who sort of married outside of that by marrying a woman of the noble class in England. But he did then go on for a time to govern Aquitaine, which was territory that belonged to England in France. So his whole kind of intention was really to sort of extend this Plantagenet influence into Europe overseas, making England a much stronger power in the Middle Ages. We're going to get back to to John of Gaunt's life, but just to fast forward for people to understand sort of why he's important in history, can you tell us a little bit about what's going to happen down the line with his children? Yes. So famously, he fathered a line of children called the Beauforts. And I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to talk about who that was with later on. But that was with his first mistress and then later wife, Catherine Swinford, who will come into it much later. But the Beauforts were particularly famous because it was through Margaret Beaufort, his great great-granddaughter, I think, great-great-granddaughter. She was the mother of Henry Tudor, who then obviously went into the War of the Roses by winning the Battle of Bosworth and therefore founded the Tudor dynasty, which is like the most famous dynasty in English history, British history. We've all heard of the Tudors. (laughs) Who hasn't yet? (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Oh, well, first also, for a modern listener who maybe is like, where or what is Gaunt? Where was Gaunt? So, Confusingly, also, but actually, I'd probably say arguably not confusingly. This time, there were so many often, you know, royal children that many of them either shared the same name or they were quite difficult to differentiate from one another. So they would often be named after the place of which they were born. So, for example, the Black Prince was Edward of Woodstock because he was born in Woodstock. And John of Gaunt was actually born in Ghent, which is where Gaunt comes from. So he was effectively John of Ghent. But over time, he has become known by his moniker, John of Gaunt. He's the medieval Bryce Dallas Howard. (laughs) So who was John of Gaunt as a person? You know, not just as a son on a family tree or a dot. Who was he sort of as an individual? So he very much lived under the shadow of his older brother, the Black Prince, because this period in the Middle Ages, this this second part of the 14th century, was in the early stages to kind of best points of the Hundred Years' War, which was a century-long war with a few gaps in between, waged between England and France. And it began in 1337, three years before John of Gaunt was born. And he was born very much into this conflict. And at this part of the conflict, it all changed a bit later on, but this part of the conflict was all about chivalry and glamour and making war something that everyone kind of wanted to be part of. Mm. And Edward III did a very good job at propagandising war. He set up jousts and tournaments, and he made it all about King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. He established the Order of the Garter. All of these things to make it look like something everyone wanted to have, get in on and be part of. And so for John of Gaunt, he really wanted to do that. He wanted to be a warrior like his father and very much like his older brother, the Black Prince. I mean, anybody who knows about the Black Prince knows that he got his reputation really from being this warlike figure. There's rumoured that he was called that because his armour was black and he was the victor of the Battle of Cressy when he, at age 16, was like right in the throngs of battle and he went on to win the Battle of Poitiers. So these are like couple of major battles that took place in the Hundred Years' War. And what people don't really know is very few battles actually took place in the Hundred Years' War. It was really a, a war where the French kind of avoided English soldiers as much as they possibly could, because largely battles went in English favour. So they tried to pretty much avoid them. So only a few actually took place. So John of Gaunt was desperate to be a warrior like his brother and his father. But unfortunately for him, 
he wasn't very good at it. But he was a very good diplomat. He was incredibly clever, he was forward-thinking, he was likeable, he was very well-liked at the French court and places that he went off to do a lot of diplomatic missions on behalf of his father. At one point, he was so good at it that he was actually touted for a potential candidate to be the heir to the Scottish throne because there was Mm. so much conflict at this point still enduring on the English and Scottish border. So he was a really well-used pawn by Edward III, but he was very trusted. His father trusted him. His father saw him as a very astute figure. He had a lot of nous when it came to politics and what it meant to govern. I feel like in any symbolic knight's life, there are certain challenges. In your book, you do a really wonderful job sort of tracing his life And you focus a little bit on the peasant revolt. Can you talk a little bit about what happens then, what the peasant revolt is, and how John of Gaunt handled it? Mm. So for me, the peasant's revolt was the catalytic moment in Gaunt's life. So, so much of his life was focused on European politics. So the Hundred Years' War, the war in France, his intention to go to Castile, which I should say was part of what we now know as Spain. It was one of the four kingdoms that made up Spain. So much of his career was dedicated to this European politics, but actually he also had an extraordinary amount of land and wealth and title in England. And he was known as the Duke of Lancaster and he was really a second to the monarch in regard to power and wealth and status. He was extraordinarily Mm. wealthy. He was not only a prince, but he was a duke, and he inherited this dukedom through his first wife, Blanche of Lancaster. And it was her father who was the first Duke of Lancaster and brought with him like a huge amount of territory. I think probably like a third of of the country and also lands in France as well. So this, can you imagine, kind of all of this income being generated from these lands? He was super, super rich. Yeah, it's a good marriage. (laughs) It's a good marriage. He was, yeah, he was super, super rich. And he was a prince. Like, what a catch. He naturally, through his wealth and title and status, he had a few enemies. This became really bad. When I talked earlier about him being loyal to his family, loyal to his father, a staunch royalist, this became bad around this time because... It was just after the death of Edward III. And just before Edward III died, he was starting to become slightly more unpopular. He was sort of losing control of the country a bit. As he died, the country fell into the hands of his nephew, Richard II. And some people might know of Richard II because he's notoriously not a great king as he got older and was eventually deposed. But (laughs) he was the surviving son of the Black Prince. Now, by this point, the Black Prince had passed away. He died of an illness that sounds a lot like dysentery, but he had it for a really long time, like maybe 10 years. So it's likely it was more like some kind of degenerative disease. Mm. So the Black Prince and his father died within a year of each other. So John of Gaunt was left basically running the country. And Richard was a child. He was he was only 12 around the time that he inherited. And famously, child kings do great in England. I know, don't yeah. they do No problems job. at all, There's easy. Totally smooth succession. So he had to oversee the infancy of Richard's reign. And in doing so, he made enemies. Mm. So he made enemies from various different classes within English society, but mostly the merchant classes because, to put this very simply, as the crown was losing money, they had to borrow lots of money from the merchant classes and and, uh, John of Gaunt didn't like that. He was a royalist. He believed that the merchant classes were the merchant classes as they were very much answerable to the king. And so you got a lot of these kind of merchant groups sort of infiltrating 
court positions, which he, he really didn't like. So he made enemies with them, and then he started to fall out with the clergy. This was largely all in London that this was happening. It was in the city because London was a very multicultural city at the time. There was a lot of change. It was quite dynamic. There was a lot of sort of, I suppose, social mobility, forward thinking, in which was slightly different to some of more of the county politics outside of London. It's quite similar, to be honest, as it is today. If you think of like Brexit and how, you know, London were like, can we just still be in the EU? It was kind of the same setup as it was in the Middle Ages. So he wasn't very popular in London. And there are a couple of accounts of him having things like his arms reversed by the people of the city, which is like the sign of a traitor. What does that mean? What does that actually look like to have your arms reversed? Like to flip it, turn it upside down? Yeah. Yeah. So you would basically turn it around so you couldn't see it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Your shield would would be turned around. And you're facing away, facing a wall or whatever. It's like someone for like a graduation speech turning their back. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing yeah. for a little sigil. Yeah, effectively, effectively. People who were his retainers, so the people who worked under him, they had their own insignia. And if people were seen wearing it, they'd be attacked in the streets. And his property at the Savoy Palace, which was his major home in London, it was a beautiful palace, crenellated, which means it was looked like a castle with the sort of dipped roof, beautifully built, and it was sort of loomed over the Thames, and it was described as this sort of Camelot-type palace, like, you know, super, super wealthy, like the man- one of the mansions of London. But it was just this sort of rising tension. But the reason for the peasants' revolt was because when Richard II was in the sort of infancy of his reign, there was a series of poll taxes on the people and they became so crippling that the poor could just not afford to pay their taxes. And so they rebelled. It started in a town called Brentwood in Essex. I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Just if Edward II is a, is a child king at this point, who do you think was the major force in putting these poll taxes up? So this is interesting. So John of Gaunt was very much one of his advisors. Yeah. But Richard II was represented by what was called a continual council. So it was a a board of members, effectively, who sort of oversaw him. And this ranged from, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury to various members of his father's friendship group, I suppose would be a good way of putting it. So it wasn't actually John of Gaunt that suggested this poll tax be raised. It was initiated in 1380, just before Christmas, and then it was imposed in 1381 and it very very quickly went very wrong so the tax collectors started to get chased down and and, you know they had to flee the towns in which they were collecting the tax from some were attacked some were killed I suppose a movement started to grow it started to go really from this particular pocket of England so you had emerged in Essex but then there was also another faction that emerged from Kent so at this point is when you get start to hear of these main leaders, one called Watt Tyler, who's very famous, and another called John Ball, who was this sort of a, a levelling priest, that he didn't believe in the idea of lords and ladies, and then there was no social hierarchy according to God. So that is really who led this revolt, so most famously Watt Tyler, and, and they were kind of egged on by sermons from this priest, John Ball, who famously said, when Adam delved in Eve span, who was then the gentleman? Oh, um, <laughs> that's very compelling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's quite, you know, this was massive. And what a lot of people previously have called this, and I have to say, Peasants' Revolt is a bit of a misleading moniker for this, because it really wasn't 
peasants. You had quite a lot of very successful people joining this revolt. And what they were fighting against was this really just this massively unfair tax that was being imposed on the poor to pay for these wars in France that they weren't really doing very well in at this point. So John of Gaunt being effectively, quote unquote, regent, he was the uncle of the king. He was also very unpopular because of his his attempt, as I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, to try and get into Castile. So it was a bit like unsure what his deal was. People didn't really trust him. So there was this big march on London, this huge, huge march of thousands of people. And it gathered pace as they moved through Canterbury, along the pilgrim roads. And it became quite violent at times. People were collecting all sorts of arms they could find. Few people owned things like swords, but some people had things. um, Some people had axes, bows and arrows, pitchforks, anything they could get their hands on, scythes. And you had people who were thatchers of houses. You had low order clergymen. You had bailiffs. You had all sorts of people joining women, all sorts of people joining in this, this march, really, on London. And all they wanted to do was march to London, get the ear of the king, say, this is unfair we're against this please can we put a proposition to you a little bit like a sort of magna carta situation that was their idea in their head as to what what they wanted to achieve by this rebellion sounds pretty reasonable you know it was and actually i think over time the chronicle accounts of sort of you read all these accounts of the revolt and it's like they 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 call people baying like they're packs of wolves or animals and all of this stuff. And it's like, well, actually, there were obviously criminals as part of this because then you get these big sort of riot types, rebellions or riots that happen. You do get people who are doing it for just causes, but then you also get people who just want to watch the world burn, right? So you definitely had that. And there were accounts of theft, murder, rape that all happened during this period as this sort of influx came into London. But I think, unfortunately, for the royalty and John of Gaunt, when they had hoped that the citizens of London, as London was a walled city at this point, would shut this rebel horde out, they actually, at the gates, just went, mm, nah, I think we'll just let them in. Because a lot of the citizens of London actually agreed with them. And it was really in London that this sort of burgeoning hatred for John of Gaunt had been bubbling under the surface. And this was an opportunity to strike oh, at him. Oh, yeah. So what happened was they got into London through various areas, notably London Bridge, because that was one of the main access points into London. At this point, London Bridge doesn't look like anything it does now. It's not even in the same location. And it had lots of houses and things on the bridge. So it was really built up and it was looked more like a dirt road that went into the city. And the city then had a gate that you had to go through. And some of the bad behaviour, I suppose, happened on London Bridge. There's accounts of brothels on London Bridge being torched and burnt down because they were sort of centres of impunity. But they managed to get into London and they had a few points of attack. And one of the places that they had targeted was the Savoy Palace, this beautiful, crenellated, Camelot-like property on the banks of the River Thames, which was this sort of great artery that all of the travel came in and out of for London. So it was the main sort of access point to London. So it's very busy. It's got lots of ships and vessels, etc. So it was really, the, the Savoy Palace was in a great position had its own little port so boats would come in and get all the wares coming into the palace from the river. It had its own pleasure gardens filled with roses. It was beautiful. It was an incredibly sumptuous palace but it was really badly guarded. So the rebels really had no problem getting inside (laughs) the palace. It was really pretty easy. And these are angry people. It's a combination of people with like good reason, you know, intellectually but also in effect are 
very upset and want to show it. Totally. They're really mad. And like it is a bit of that mob mentality as well. I think some of them were probably like, yeah, we're really mad. Who are we mad at? Oh, him. Yeah, we're really mad. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so a lot of them wanted to just, as I say, destroy stuff and have a bit of a party, get inside some of these amazing properties. This is the sort of thing some people had never even dreamt of being able to access. These great halls and these wine cellars and, you know, John of Gaunt's bedroom. Like, they actually did manage to get into places like this. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So... They managed to get in, unfortunately for him, and part of the reason it was probably so poorly guarded, was that John of Gaunt was actually on a, one of these diplomatic missions, and he had gone up to Berwick-on-Tweed to negotiate with the Scots. So definitely, fortunately for him, he wasn't actually present. But what they did is they got in and they started to destroy stuff. So they were ripping off tapestries. They were taking headboards. And at this point, headboards of beds, beds themselves, were very, very expensive pieces of, of property. Sure. They were sort of, you know, bejeweled often, finely decorated. They were taking clothing out of these great trunks. And they were taking, finding plate, which was, you know, ex these expensive plate that would, be, that would have adorned, adorned the palace. And they were creating this pyre in the Great Hall, you know, the centre of the feasting and John of Gaunt's diplomacy would have taken place in this Great Hall. And, and the Savoy Palace, this was a big place. It was an important place. It's where King John of France spent most of his captivity when he was uh, taken prisoner after the Battle of Poitiers. But he had quite a nice imprisonment at the Savoy, by all accounts. Sure. So um, <laughs> just drinking wine from France and not really having to do anything. So, yeah, this was uh, Geoffrey Chaucer was here for, for a period of time as well. So it, it's quite extraordinary that this was the sort of last hurrah that took place inside this great hall was this giant pyre that was being mm. built um, of all of these goods. And what's interesting about this is these rebels, they weren't out to steal. I mean, this was an opportunity to generate extraordinary wealth by stealing all of these goods. Yeah. But actually, those who did try and steal were, were cut, you know, quote unquote, cut down by their contemporaries saying, you know, we are not here to steal. We're here to prove a point. So they literally proved that point by burning this wealth. Mm. So this great pyre goes up in the hall and what they make the mistake of doing is finding some barrels in the cellars thinking they were like either jewels or goods or wine and they roll them onto the pyre. But little do they know that John of Gaunt was preparing a muster for his campaign into Castile and there was a lot of gunpowder stored. Oh. So they roll over these, gun, these barrels of gunpowder onto this pyre. I mean, there wouldn't have been a huge amount because they're just, you know, but it, there was an amount enough to do a serious damage. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was a, I love this little kind of vignette, there was a faction of these rebels, about 30 of them, who snuck down to the wine cellars. <laughs> you probably get where I'm going here. And um, there were all of these amazing barrels of Gascon wine that, you know, obviously were a big commodity in England at this time. And they got really drunk. <laughs> they had a party. And they got really, really drunk on all of this wine. Bear in mind, most people were usually drinking ale, something much, much lighter than this quite strong Gascon wine. So they were drinking, drinking, and then suddenly there was this sort of massive boom and the palace walls came crumbling down. They trapped these rebels, these drunken rebels, inside the cellar oh. because the gunpowder came off and the palace sort of fell yeah. down. So it was like devastation, basically. These drunken rebels, it said that they were sort of trapped down in the cellar and screams of the rebels, etc. So it's pretty, pretty macabre situation, but also like what such a wonderful detail that you can get from some of these sources in, in the 14th century. 
And then they went on to inflict all sorts of horrible damage, including dragging the Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon Sudbury, out of the Tower of London and after eight blows managing to finally behead him. All the while, John of Gaunt's son, Henry of Bolingbroke, his, the future King Henry IV, was in the Tower of London hiding in a cupboard. So, God forbid, the rebels found him, but he had managed to escape uh, with his life on this occasion. And then it all ended at a meeting with Richard and the rebels at which, quite famously, what Tyler was cut down and then the peasants' revolt was no more. It's such a pity also to imagine this beautiful medieval townhouse that we might have still had that got fully destroyed. It's, I know, and that, that is what I find particularly sad. And for me, you know, it, it takes me back to that time where I just really wanted to go and, and find it and see it. And the story behind it is it's demonstrative of, I suppose, the tapestry of history that you get in these old towns and cities, particularly in England and, and Europe, where there is so much history under our feet and so much that has happened there that has effectively been flattened by time. And I think it's a really good example of that. But why it's important for John of Gordon is that he never rebuilt it. And this particular palace was hugely important. It was inherited as part of that Duchy of Lancaster inheritance that he received when he married his first wife. It was the centre of his administration. It was the centre of so much. But he never rebuilt it. And I think it was a massive knock to his sense of self and his sense of place within the construct of English politics at this time. And... So much changed, and it is what is remarkable, and what one never usually gets. And it is like it's like gold dust when you get this as a historian. This moment that you can see actual evidence of something dramatically changing on a personal level for a person. So, as soon as he heard news that this revolt had happened, the palace had been destroyed. He didn't know where he stood in regard to the king. He didn't know if the rebels' demands for John of Gaunt's head would, were going to be sanctioned. He didn't know any of this, and he was just there in Scotland for the first time in his life, phenomenally vulnerable. And he was at the mercy of the Scots, who actually, he, throughout all of these years of conducting these diplomatic missions with them, they took pity on him, and they actually genuinely looked after him and cared for him, which, you know, he sort of repaid the favour later on in his life. And he never forgot that. And... He tried to travel back down south to England. He was refused entry to his castles in the north of England. Um, he was refused by the keeper of the north, a man called Henry Percy, something he did not forget after this point. And he thought that he was going to have this party of rebels, this, this army, effectively march north to, to arrest him and have him killed. He thought thousands of rebels were on their way north to, to yeah. get him. And so much so, he, the Scots actually offered him an army <laughs> to go and fight. They're like, any opportunity, I'll fight with you. Let's just go and like take it. Yeah, I'll totally fight with you. Uh, for any opportunity from the Scots to kind of... Oh, we're fighting Englishmen? Great. I'm in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm in. So um, he, he did politely refuse. He really did fear for his life. And one of the notable things that he did was he started to become incredibly, seemingly incredibly penitent. And he started to make a lot of donations to religious houses. He started to, I mean, practical measures were taken first. He wanted to sort of make sure he had enough wood and fortifications for his properties in the north of England, etc. He knew he couldn't go back to London. But he started becoming more penitent and more pious. And John of Gaunt had always been fairly average with his levels of piety. It was very normal to have a 
a conventional piety at this point if you were particularly if you were a member of the nobility i mean you the middle ages were ruled by religion i mean that is how everybody lived their life it was ruled by religion so he was no different but he was never extreme with it and he was slightly more extreme than he would be normally but the most significant thing that he did was he ended his relationship with a woman called Catherine Swinford, who was his long-term lover, mistress, um, mother of his of four both but children. Future mother of uh, Henry Tudor. Well, yes, the sort of future sort of great, 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 great grandmother of, of Henry Tudor. So she was hugely important to him. She was originally the governess or what's called in the sources as the maestress of his, of his daughters by his first wife. And he was having a long-term extramarital affair with her. It had been lasting a decade. And I think that they were in love. I think he very much cared for her, admired her, loved her, looked after her. But he ended it, like, immediately. He ended his relationship with her because, of course, naturally, it did invite negative press, negative attention. Of course, the uh, clerics were not very happy about this. He was supposed to be married to the Castilian princess, Constance of Castile, who he had wife married. number two, wife number two, who he had married really for political gain. They didn't have a relationship, but he ended his relationship with Catherine, which is extraordinary. And what he did do, though, which is testament, I think, to how emotionally difficult this was for him, but he knew he had to do it almost immediately, a month after the rebellion. He invested in the building of a shrine, is one of his properties in Nesborough, to St. Catherine, mm. which I think really is some is like a sort of eulogy in stone to their relationship and a demonstration of his fidelity to her in his heart. Mm. And so after that, his main focus was, it was this massive turning point in his life. His main focus was Castile, Castile's Castile. I'm going to become King of Castile, I'm going to lead campaigns to Castile, and that was his major objective. He was had no interest in London, he didn't want to be part of the court, he didn't want to be part of the political circle. He had to be, to a certain extent, but he was far less than he was before. His relationship with his nephew after this point was incredibly fractious. I mean, Richard was a little nightmare. He was like, <laughs> it was like having like a teenager basically being somewhat in charge of you <laughs> and like a, a very spoiled teenager at that and uh, John of Gaunt was the, probably the only person who stood up to him and was like no way but he wasn't very popular with his nephew for doing so and there were all sorts of like continuing effectively plots to assassinate him and then Richard saying you plotted to assassinate me and it was just it was ridiculous really so eventually he did manage to get to Castile. He tried to lead a campaign, but he failed to take the throne. He returned to England quite broken. And about four or so years before he died, he married Catherine. So they came back together at this point. That's sort of beautiful. He, he ended it out of piety. Yeah. But then when he yeah. was able to marry her, did. But can you walk us through? I mean, he had those children out of wedlock. What yeah. what happens then? Yeah. So it all sounds very romantic. And there is a wonderful novel that is written about their romance called Catherine, which I, many of your listeners will have read because it was very, very popular by a lady called Anya Seaton. And she doesn't capitalise on the romance of this. And I mean, who wouldn't? It is wonderful. But I think that there was much more sort of prudent thinking behind it. 
So I think that he knew he had to end his relationship with her because he really, his main thing, his main love was was power. And he wanted to get to Castile. He wanted to take the throne. He couldn't do that when he was anchored down by this relationship, however invested he was in it, however much he loved her. That sounds very cold. I really do think he loved her. And there are demonstrations of that. I think he married her in the long term because he was, above all things, incredibly duty bound and loyal. I mean, yes, he was obviously having an affair with somebody other than his wife. But generally speaking, he was incredibly duty bound. He wanted to see to the safety of his um, children and his all his children, not just his legitimate children, but all of them. And he actually had them officially legitimized, which is at which point they took on the name Beaufort as when they were formally legitimized. So he wanted to ensure to their security on his death, he wanted to ensure to, to Catherine's security as well. And her reputation, I think he felt he owed that to her. So they did, yeah, they did eventually marry. And But, you know, their relationship was very much, um, it was very practical in many ways. And I think often when we think about demonstrations of love, we think there's going to be jewels or tokens. But actually tokens for her were very practical ones. Wood for her household, wine, property. He wanted to cede her security. And for me, that is the most demonstrative evidence of a loving relationship. Absolutely. So just to recap for listeners, from his first wife, the Lancaster branch, sort of of the War of the Roses, came about. His second wife, mm-hmm. often Castile. Third mm-hmm. wife. But through through them, Catherine of Aragon oh, was descended. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and then third wife, uh, Catherine Swinford, who the children were born out of wedlock, but then legitimized. And did that sort of cast a pall on their claim? even though they were legitimized, the fact that they were originally born out of wedlock? I mean, it's difficult to say. I haven't really done so much research into the Beauforts after his death. But, I mean, I don't think so, because they never really had designs on on the throne. And Mm. John of Gaunt, he was the sort of patriarch of further dynasties, because if you could sort of link yourself back to John of Gaunt, it's like, well, I've got a claim to this, and I'm part of the royal family because of this. Like He was quite a significant figure. He was a very well-respected figure. So I don't know if I'd say that because they also got on very, very well with their brother. They were very close. Henry definitely considered them as as siblings, I think, because also he had a huge amount of respect for Catherine. So that became Henry IV, who was John of Gaunt's uh, oldest son, who eventually deposed his cousin Richard and became the first Lancastrian king in 1399, just after his father had died. Um, So I, I don't think that it did sort of taint them. They were always quite revered and had well-respected positions within the noble circles. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And I I misspoke earlier. I was like Margaret Beaufort's daughter. Obviously, she was a great-granddaughter of Gaunt. Yeah, great-great-great-great-granddaughter, I think. Great-great-granddaughter. But like it's further down the line, but that is the claim that Henry VII, Henry Tudor will take. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. He sort of like, they went up on the family tree and they were like, um, (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you know, somewhere up there. (laughs) I want to let you go. This is so fascinating. But there's a detail about another thing that was built on the estate that the Savoy Palace had been built on. It became a hospital. Yeah, that's right. Under Henry VII. Yeah, it was a sort of charitable. So there would have been there were remains of, of the palace. It wasn't like flattened, so to speak. And, you know, also in this period, stone was always reused. So even if it was rubble, it would have been reused in certain ways. You know, good stone was a really great commodity and it would always be redeveloped. That's why you saw 
a lot of like Roman brickwork and stuff in, in later medieval buildings and things. So yeah, it did become a hospital. Yeah, a hospital which is for the poor. It was like a way of giving alms, like a charitable donation which was something that was often the case for sort of members of the nobility, especially wealthy members, because by doing that sort of thing, you basically guaranteed yourself like that nice little seat in heaven. Yes, of course. I just found it very poetic that after this peasant's revolt of poor people rising up in anger of not feeling provided for, that eventually his descendant would turn the site of this palace mm. into a, a charitable hospital. I know, that's lovely. And you know, I'd never really thought of it like that. A nice little epilogue. Yeah, it is a nice little epilogue, isn't it? Well, Helen, thank you so much. This was such a privilege to get to talk to you. Where can the people find you online if they want to see more of you? I am, I have to try to think about what my Twitter and Instagram handles are. I think I'm at Helen H. Carr on Twitter and I am Helen Carb with lots of underscores in between the letters. Google her. You'll find her. We'll link Google, it in the show notes. Google's fine um, on Instagram. And I've also got a website. So to be honest, if you just type Helen Carr Historian, I'll pop up. Her book is The Red Prince, The Life of John of Gaunt. You should absolutely read it. Helen is one of the most like brilliant writers who makes history feel... You make it feel like fiction. It's so wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Well, sometimes it's so... like It writes itself, to be honest. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.